Thank you very much for the honor you expressed by being here and giving me your attention for a little while. I hope that uh, to make it worthwhile and look forward to your comments, uh, objections, uh, needed qualifications. I will not give you a test on the countries that I haven't visited. Uh, that is indeed an impressive list, but uh, it was a, bit, a lot of fun to uh, see many parts of the world and to be able to engage uh, others in hearty and serious conversations. The subject that I wanted to address you with uh, follows on, in a sense, right from some of the books that I have written in the past, beginning with Pro-Existence back in 1974 on the nature of work as an expression of your humanity, not as a curse. The sweat of uh, getting involved with the plow does not occur until after the fall. But before that, already Adam and Eve were created to not sit still and gaze, to not sing just hallelujahs, but indeed to work. And work is an expression of our humanity, of our personality. And pro-existence attempted to bring that to a culture, an age, back when we were all much younger, and some of you perhaps weren't even born, uh, the hippie culture when we were tempting to, tempted to go to Kathmandu and uh, sit under gurus. And I wanted to show something about the nobility of human effort and work. The Innocence of God talks about uh, the, uh, the, the rejection of the notion that God is in such control of history that everything that happens is the will of God. Christianity versus fatalistic religions in the war against poverty came out of my work in the third world countries, some of which were mentioned, not Australia and Norway, but the others, uh, where my emphasis was to show that the real poverty in people's experience is so often not geographic. It is not uh, um, localized to the natural conditions in which people live, but it is a poverty of ideas a poverty of ideas that is created by fatalistic religious outlooks or fatalistic political programs, where the human being is seen as merely part of a machinery of a fateful existence that of necessity functions in the same way repetitively again and again. And where the message that the Bible gives us that we live, A, in a world to be created, by naming things, by discovering things, by having dominion rather than being victims of the world in which we live, is added to by the commands to put your hands to the plow after the fall and to seek justice and to do works of righteousness and to care for the poor and to feed the hungry as an outlook of ideas that come from scripture. They are not ideas that come from nature. In a fallen nature, things just sort of happen in a Christian perspective, they should happen because we put our mind to it prayerfully before God asking for wisdom of what we can do and not being idealistic, yet neither being resigned to what is. And then I've written a book, uh, Neither Necessary Nor Inevitable, which sort of continues the theme of the innocence of God and of Christianity versus fatalistic religions, that much of history was not necessary. Things could have been different for both for better and for worse, because of the choices that people have made. And thus, again, it's a statement against the feeling of resignation or inevitability, which is so much part of our thinking and it continues to be insisted upon in many areas, all the way from theology to neuroscience. 
that somehow the human being is the consequence of all kinds of influences that are making situations inevitable. Uh, when I was in law school, one of the professors suggested that no sane person would commit a crime and therefore every criminal must be insane. And there was no room for precisely the choices that people also have. Now, some people tend to overemphasize the choice and declare guilty people who have inherited problems for which they are not guilty. And others see precisely the absence of guilt because we are nothing but the end result of various influences. And somehow, it seems to me, both from the notion, from the observation of reality, from the observation of human language, and from the scriptures, we realize that much of life is not inevitable. Choices are real. There is the reality of guilt, the measure of which only God would know, but the reality of which we acknowledge when we do lose language that uses terms of phrase and blame. Do you realize our whole legal system, our whole language would have to be changed if we were to conclude that the human being is part of a natural process? Then there's no guilt, there's no wrong, there's no right, there just is. And finally, the last book, God and Man at Work, Doing Well and Doing Good, in the Bible's view of life, just came out last year, uh, was an attempt to describe all that in a way that would be accessible to the kind of people that don't read books with many, um, more from a theological perspective, but rather that describes our biblical understanding of uh, our creatureliness, of our humanity, of our uh, purpose and, and the call of God to us to be human beings. Together with the realization that all morality and ethics is related not to the club rules of the church, but rather to the nature of God and the nature of his creation. In other words, God doesn't ask us to be separate from reality in a special group of people, of Christians, but rather he asks us to be more realistic about the real world. You shall have no other gods beside me is a statement that no other gods' existence and nature would sufficiently explain the phenomenon of human beings. That's the only reason. And therefore, any other god who doesn't, whose existence wouldn't explain this couldn't exist because if there is a god, he would be the one who has to give an ex whose, whose existence and nature would be the explanation for everything else. You shall honor father and mother is there because we do have a father and mother and without them we wouldn't be. And so therefore we should honor them even if we should not necessarily obey them. We should love them, but then we should also love our enemies. It's part of the reality, not a club rule or a separate identity. And to tell the truth or not to commit adultery or not to steal are all parts of the fact of the observation that reality has a specific form. And the Ten Commandments, or the elaboration of the Ten, which, let me say, the Ten Commandments I see as a somewhat larger elaboration of the great command to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. How do we do this? Well, follow the Ten Commandments. And to diminish the misunderstanding of what these Ten Commandments might be teaching, you have the whole rest of the Bible fleshing out this, the way your country's laws supposedly flesh out the constitution of the country. It's all part of the same, and the emphasis is always on reality is real. God exists. He has made a distinct universe that functions in a certain way in which human beings are the only ones who are also free to tell jokes, to project propaganda, to lie, as well as to know the truth. And so 
how to be doing well and doing good is to understand these things and then to apply them in practical life. And I go on in the latter part of the book to talk about the basis of ethics. For instance, that measurements should be precise and weights exact. That a two by four should be two by four and not two by three and three quarters. That our words should relate to the substance and, and, of, and materiality of the things we describe. That we should not precisely uh, pretend something. Uh, ethics in business and so forth needs to relate to the fact that we live in a universe not of our imagination, but in a universe that God has created with a specific form and a specific shape. Now, having said that, let me come to the subject of today's uh, brief uh, proposition. A proposition is basically that ideas are wonderful and culture is the result of human beings inventing of, of interpreting, of observ observation, of interaction, of an, and of creating new things. We do that on the basis of the fact that we are precisely unlike animals, not merely instinctually responding to stimuli, but we have imagination, we have ideas, we have an inner life. We are true subjects, true personalities that argue with circumstances and by virtue of the fact that we are not instinctually responding we also have such a thing as memory and imagination. Memory into the past and imagination into the future. We're not stuck with the present and its stimuli. We have memory precisely because as human beings we transcend the moment in our mind, in our body, we're here now, it's this time at this location. But in our mind we can be elsewhere. And we can be elsewhere because we've had a memory, both from experience, and from other people's description of their experience. That's why you know something about those countries that your president has just enumerated without necessarily having been there. You, in your mind, include all kinds of perceptions that you weigh and argue with and explore and fantasize about the whole world of an inner life, the life of a mind. It's on the basis of that phenomenon of the human being that all science and all art exists. It is always the effort to embellish, to vary, to improve the given situation. We expand through the arts and sciences what is and work towards what might still become or what we wish they were there. All law and education is based on the realization of such a universe with such human beings in it. By law, we try to order the misbehavior of people and to clarify what we forget. I think the first commandment to remember that there's one God and only one God who's brought us out of Egypt is to remind us of this against our wishful thinking, our fantasy, our despair, making us reflect on the fact that reality demands certain answers to which the Bible gives us this answer which can be fleshed out, examined, compared in reality to be found to be true. This has something to do with the way our brain is constructed, both by the information we receive visually and verbally in order to extend, as it were, our awareness of reality. And it brings us to the realization that indeed, in contrast to all other world systems, all other religions, all other political systems, 
The Bible emphasizes the right of the individual to be an individual. He is not part of a natural mechanistic order. He, is un, he rejects the Stoic or Aristotelian proposition that things are what they are and you're just part of them and accept that. Instead of that, we are encouraged precisely to think beyond, beyond the now into the past and the future, beyond the real into that which is also possible, and we try that out, including the fantasy of a unicorn which has never been seen yet. It is the capacity of the individual to be oneself, to observe an internal drama in each of us of frustration, of great joy, a personal subjectivity, in which we are respected by God with a name that is unique to us, with a life that is unique to us, with a meaning to our existence that is unique to the human being. We have indeed a verifiable, a variable and verifiable identity as people. And it's out of that that the richness of ideas and the richness of culture comes. Not only culture in the sense of beautifying things, but also culture in the sense of objecting to that which is wrong or repairing that which is ugly, or removing that which is unjust, and doing that which is necessary in order to be indeed in the image of God and to reflect God's character and purposes, to apply his word in the actions, in the thoughts of human beings. We are precisely not part merely of mankind. We are individuals. In fact, mankind is an abstract term. It's a collective word that relates to nothing specific, other than there's a bunch of human beings and it's been around for a while. When the Marxist says that his efforts are to improve humanity, there is no such thing as humanity. There are individuals, billions of them, and they need improvement. And together you have a collective term in our imagination, but there is no such thing as that collectivity in substance. We're not part of a state or a political party. We're individuals who choose to not think for ourselves if in fact our home is the state. Patriotism often used by both Hitler and Stalin to bind people to the common cause is a way to deny the individual his role and responsibility as an individual. We're not part of history in the Hegelian sense when various political uh, candidates or uh, in the public discussion of policy and so forth. We people talk about being on the right or wrong side of history. It's the old Hegelian notion that there is such a thing as history that has a momentum forward and upward, and you either ride on that sleigh or you fall off, is a notion that has nothing to do with the reality of human beings making choices. There is no such thing as an inevitable progress, though we wish to believe that, but just as on a more basic, on a most basic level, already the Romans had hot water heat, both under, under the floor as well as in radiators. They knew something about the extension of molecular movement in water that made warm water rise and cold water sink because of the higher and lesser concentration of the molecules. And they used that in southern France in the first century after Christ. And that knowledge that should lead to progress was forgotten. And for whatever, 1,700 years, we sat in the cold. So there's no inevitable progress, as there's no inevitable progress in ourselves. Knowledge can be gained and lost. And what we have gained can be used wisely or foolishly. 
there's no such thing as being on the wrong side of history of towards democracy or towards capitalism or towards a society under law. Our own two last two generations have shown us that the great wish of the extension of human rights after 1944 would uh, advance, in fact, in recent years. But all along, we have seen precisely the brutality to human rights increasing. So, ideas, yes, but ideas not just by themselves. They need the encouragement precisely because we are human beings. And being human beings is something that is under attack. The individual is under attack by the sciences, by saying we live in a large determinism. In theology, by the assumption that God is in control and whatever happens must be the will of God. And in human relationships, by saying we are just the end result of the various material pressures that are on us or the benefits, material benefits that are on us, or that history has moved us along to where we are, or that the wealth I have is most rightfully gained because I have it. But somehow the poor are poor because they deserve to be poor. The distinction ever since the 19th century and perhaps earlier already between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor is not a biblical distinction. This kind of a human being I've described rests on the fact that the Bible, on two grounds, on two pillars. One is the Bible's affirmation that we've been made in the image of a God with ideas, of a thinking God, not a static power, but one who has ideas, who thought up that one day he would, in his sequence of his existence, he would create a world, and before that he hadn't made it. And it was in the sequence of his existence because this God presents himself in Scripture as a triune God, and a triune God is of three personalities that communicate with each other. They are one God, yet three persons, that love each other, as Jesus says in the high priestly prayer, the love wherewith you have loved me from before the foundation of the world should also be amongst my disciples. A loving relationship is a relationship of give and take, of enjoyment, of pleasure in each other, of honoring each other, etc. It is not the Buddha's grin in permanence. There is a before and after in sequence, even to God. He is not pure divinity. He is the heavenly Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God, the one who made us in his image. That's the first pillar. The second pillar, of course, is the observation of human beings, the match between scripture and reality. Observing human beings wherever they are gives confidence that we're on the right track, that one needs to be seen in light of the other. For not only is man made in the image of God, but also in the passage on the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10, Jesus reminds us that we are called gods, not the eternal gods, not the holy gods, not after the fall, but we are called gods in the sense of a direct linkage in natural categories, in the categories of nature between God and the creature made in his image. Jesus says there, I and the Father are one, and the Pharisees are quite naturally, quite understandably upset, because how could God come to lunch? They'd forgotten that he'd already done that with Abraham. But how could you stand before me? And uh, they were set out to stone him. And Jesus' response is, but why do you wish, why do you object to this, that I, been present in your presence, could be one with the Father? When in fact your text, and he quotes the Psalms, says, you are God's. Because you can understand the word of God 
and should use it for the judgments and the teaching and so forth that you use in day-by-day life. So not only is there the image of God in man, it is also that we know something about God because we know something about the human being. There is a direct lineage between the infinite, eternal, holy, uh, completely, uh, himself, truthfully, etc., God, and the creature that he has made in his image, who is also personal. And as we are thinking human beings, so God is presented as the one who, of course, is at the beginning, the one who does the thinking. That's what the Bible tells us. God thinks. After the fall, he laments. He accuses when things are wrong. He pardons when we ask for forgiveness. He corrects and makes propositions. He pleads with us. He demands responses. He binds himself to the covenant relationship that he has established all the way back to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the way down to the promise that in Christ Jesus we have real salvation and forgiveness. And in the return of Christ, in his resurrection, the first fruit of a harvest, there will be a fuller harvest of the resurrection of the people that God has made. And so that's what we find in Scripture. This God created. He purposefully created. He set out to do something and accomplished it. Creation is wanted by God. It's desired. It expresses himself in his desire. He creates furthermore in sequence, in seven periods of time, however long they were. But he creates not everything with a big bang, whoom, there it was, but there are many bangs along the way. I don't know if they could be heard or not, but nevertheless, there were new creations along the way. And that sequence gives us not a timeless God, but a God in sequence. In each one of the six days of creation, he looks at the end of the day at what he had done and said, behold, it is very good. And so we find in Genesis a creation with increasing specificity not with a stillness that is not to be touched, not with an end result that is not to be questioned, but rather with six days of creation and a day of rest. And then God says to Adam and Eve, now you go on. You create. You do the things that I cannot do. God cannot have babies, for instance. Only human beings have babies. Uh, You go ahead and create a relationship. God does not tell Adam and Eve how to get to know one another. They do that by themselves, and so forth. And you find, precisely, the command to have dominion, uh, meaning figure out how things work and make use of them. And that's what we find Adam and Eve to do. So they increase what God had made. They add to what is there. They cross-breed apples so that we have more kinds than were made at the beginning, and so forth. With increasing specificity and distinctions, God creates. Furthermore, he spoke, and it was. And there is the context of language there, of the eternal word becoming flesh, opening the door for Adam and Eve to use language to identify, to distinguish, to clarify, and to communicate about the world that they live in and in their relationship to each other, how they admire, love, define, encourage one another. All that before the fall. In other words, being in the image of this God who creates in sequence with greater specificity an open universe where not everything is already done is the reality in which we as image bearers of God are to create ideas, use our ideas to create culture. After the fall, there's a repair job to be added to that. 
Because now we also need to approach each other after we've accused one another, as Adam and Eve had to. There will be increasing pain in childbirth, but there will be a Messiah born. Work will be now sweaty, because by the sweat of the brow you will work the plow. You will have to deal with tensions such as Cain and Abel, where Abel is the victim of Cain's anger and jealousy. And you have to deal with such things as Noah not praying for the others that drowned in the flood. We have no evidence of that, though he was a righteous man, but it doesn't say he was right in everything. Or the Babylonians, or the people at the Tower of Babylon, of Babel, who uh, replaced God with their own fiction of uh, their own divinity, their own last reason, and so forth. Against all that, God intervenes and asks precisely that something new would be built in the promises, the covenant to Abraham, and everything that follows in the Old and the New Testament. I remind you then, ideas are in the mind of God, in his nature. They are not necessarily God's will, nor will all of God's ideas or our ideas be made real. Some of it depends on our action. Much of it depends on the choices we made. God created an unfinished creation, an unfinished history, an incompleteness to what is and what will be. In this, of course, the Jewish understanding of God and the Christian understanding, it should also be, stands in contrast to the Greek understanding of God. God, The Greek perfection is a static, closed, finished, basta kind of a perfection because anything additional would indicate that until now it was not yet there and therefore imperfect. And it's the tension between Athens and Jerusalem, between the Jewish perspective and the Greek perspective, that permeates much of the life of our life, of the life of our culture, and of the life of of Christians as well. What the Bible describes is a history with human participation, where uniquely human things are part of the fulfillment of the mandates to be human, where the world is open to our additions, where we have true significance, where we're not called to merely repeat what everybody else has already done, which is typical of African tribal religions, or to lose ourselves in the oneness of everything, which is typical of Buddhist teaching, or to follow along with the necessary dialectic uh, progression of history, which was part of the Marxist teaching. Now, God gives us ideas, both in the text about his own character as well as in his actions, the miraculous intervention, the coming to lunch, the discussion he has with the prophets and telling them what to say to, to, in Amos and other places of the Old and New Testament. It is a text that appeals to our mind, that broadens our perception away from the mere now to also what was and what could be and then in addition to what should be. The question that God asks of Adam, where are you, is a question that is not indicating God's ignorance, but rather makes Adam reflect on how he got to the bush he was hiding in. What did I do to end up here? What a mess I made of my life, etc. There's this interaction of God with us as human beings, involving and creating precisely what I said earlier is characteristic of the human being, and that is to have an inner life to experience a drama, to go through life not of necessary consequences, but of chosen realities as well as necessary things which are in the nature of an impersonal creation. 
It's why the scriptures encourage us to argue with God and argue with history, to argue with our culture, to argue with propositions that are made, to always open up what presents itself as assumedly final, as a conclusion, to never accept in life a final solution of the Hitlerian kind or another. That really brings me to my third point, and that is, yet such conclusion, such finality, such attempts to remove the uncertainty and insecurity of history and human experiences, according to scripture, is the nature of ideology. The creation of human beings to cut out this uncertainty of what will be tomorrow. I want to know already. And I create an image in my mind, that's the gift of having ideas, the ability of having ideas. I create an image in my mind which is so beautiful that it must be imposed on the now, even at the expense of doing away with the human being. Now, Hitler only did away with Jews, Romanians, and handicapped people. Stalin only did away, and Lenin only wanted to do away with the bourgeois middle class, the property-owning class that produces envy and greed. And then they thought they would have a better humanity, a purified race, a more egalitarian society. But there's more at stake than just that kind of brutality, which is physical. There's also the intellectual brutality by robbing human beings of the right to be a self, a person, an image bearer of a God who is himself, someone with a personality, with a personhood in his nature, and who calls us precisely to be individuals, to make choices ourselves. I suggest that the uncertainty that this openness to ideas creates, because I don't know what you're going to do next, and I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, and not just in terms of ISIS and Mr. Putin, but in terms of each other. I don't know whether, and so forth, creates a tremendous uncertainty which is uncomfortable because it gives, holds us, it puts us into a holding pattern in which we look forward to with anxiety or hope to something that is not yet. That is the reality of our existence. And in order to remove that uncertainty, to create a peaceful environment, modern man is willing to either use material influences or use uh, tools to kill the person who stands in the way with his ideas, to do away with the thinking person, the questioning Christian in your community, the young person who has doubts and so forth, we rather put him out of the community or accuse him of all kinds of ill uh, intent, or we in fact go so far as we do in the modern sciences by removing the reality of a person's mind. It's only a brain, it's only chemistry, it's only deterministic elements from uh, his background or from the weather patterns or from his education, etc. But the self, that unknown, inexhaustible human being uh, is done away with. That's what ideology has tried to do. Uh, <clears throat> it's the experience of reality that leads to insecurity it's the experience of acknowledging that human beings are precisely creative, both in a positive and in a negative way, that they can tell the truth as well as tell lies, that they can talk about reality as well as make a jest about reality. It opens up this reality of an uncertainty, unsure situation. 
And in ideology, the attempt is made to bring in perfection, or that modern world word we use at funerals, to bring in closure. A term I despise, because there's no closure. It's a way to control so that I don't have to face tomorrow and the uncertainty of your thoughts and your actions. It's a construction to move, remove the, uh, to, uh, yeah, it's seeking closure, a final solution, an end to history. It's a logical construct that weakens the unresolved tensions of existence itself. While well, the Bible tells us that we live by waiting for, looking forward to, as Paul sums up his teaching in Thessalonica at the end of the first chapter of the first letter to the Thessalonians, you know, you've turned to the true and living God away from idols, from many to one, true and living rather than invented. And you look forward to Christ, the, whom God raised from the dead. This linear view of history is cut off by precisely put, squeezing everything into a neat and uh, uh, wholesome form. It's removing the ongoing history that the scriptures describe from creation on in order to gain some kind of a peaceful assumption. Now, there are many ideologies that are in use, using this goal to bring in this kind of a secure, predictable uh, setting by exclusion, by denial, and other forms. We all are familiar with Marxism as an ideology where Hegelian history is seen as driven by some divine spirit to move forward in the dialectic through push and shove, and in Marx particular, through conflict, <clears throat> in an advance towards an ideal situation where all contrasts are uh, abolished and where, in Marx's term, we reach the um, perfect situation of an equal society. It's also found in fascism, where the purity of the race will establish all human weakness, will remove all human weakness, and we will count on human beings being able to be the glory of history and uh, give happiness to all those that will then be around, which of course are only the survivors of this brutality. It's found also in the ideology of traditionalism, where we are called to repeat for the sake of community that which, and harmony that which has always been practiced and where the individual who raises his hand and asks questions and doubts and wishes to improve things is seen to be upsetting and to be punished. I found this in Russia again, where in the praise of four little teenage girls doing a Beatles song on stage with their gyrations of their gentle bodies, was punished by the school because it showed unsocial behavior. They set themselves up as performers, while the whole school ought to function as a collective. You find it also not only in traditionalism, but also in the Greek fates, in the fixed firmament that directs everything that happens, or in the perfect heaven that Plato describes, where there is no vitality, no life, no continuation. There is rest, but not rest for the human being, but rest for what's left of the human being. You find it in materialism, in naturalism, in the social engineering to adjust behavior so that people conform to what is the standard chosen. You find it in the belief that democracy will always produce a better government, failing to recognize that it only brings in the government if the participants in the voting process are better, improve themselves, are more responsible than just for themselves. 
in our own recent history in the last 20 years and the spreading of democracy with good intentions and from a desire to liberate people from the prison of their religion and their habits has led to much chaos, precisely because the people have not taken their side of the bargain seriously and improved their wisdom and their knowledge of history and of human beings. The people or the voters don't necessarily bring in a better government. It's interesting that even in our own countries, we have an arising attempt to direct our market behavior by means of the market deciding the price of wages. Adam Smith misused only the first book on the wealth of nations read without the other one on the need for empathy uh, that follows and actually was written before the uh, wealth of nation book was written. The belief in the invisible hand, which for Adam Smith was a form of mockery because he didn't believe there was such a thing as an invisible hand. It was a picture. Without the moral sentiment emphasis produces precisely what we have today, the distancing, greater and greater distance between what the market has given into my pocket and then what the market has produced for you. Well, that's just too bad. And it overlooks the emphasis on moral sentiment. I was just telling before I came here to one of you how recently I found that in the development of the Scottish uh, Reformation and the influence on Adam Smith uh, and someone else, Ferguson, uh, they emphasize very strongly that capitalism is a wonderful development of specialization. You do your job well because you do only that job. But it always also impoverishes you because you have nothing else to relate to. And you become basically a producer of one thing and you're no longer a diverse human being. In order to combat that, he advocates two things. One is that the profit of capitalism would be used to finance public education through parish schools in the towns in which the participants in the market live. The thing that led in the 1860s to the first Sunday school created in England, until then I believe there were no Sunday schools unless you Baptists know more, about Sunday school than the rest of us do, which is very possible. But in 1860, there was an English industrialist who saw the employees of his factories from 10 years on on, the little boys running around on Sunday in streets doing nothing, playing games and getting into trouble. And so he started a Sunday school. And in that Sunday school, it was a school on Sunday for reading, writing and mathematics. That's what Adam Smith suggests too, that the parish church I mean, the parish school, that is not the church school, but the parish school in the English sense of parish, the community school, should be financed by the profits of capitalism in order to educate what? Well, the next generation of employees. That's something that we've forgotten in our recent years, in our countries, where the market decides that what I can get away with, I have a right to. That also is an ideology. It does not do justice to the complexity of human situations, to the unfairness and inequality of opportunity that exists in our countries. Another article I read recently is how much, allow me to say this and then explain, how much luck plays a part in our setup. It doesn't mean luck in the sense of dice rolled or something like this. It is rather how much the context in which we grow up shows itself to be evident and have results in the life of us. And thus, we don't live in a fair world. We should know that from the teaching about the fall. 
We live in an unfair world in which after the fall, we are commanded to seek justice because it isn't natural. Dist, di, uh, injustice is natural. Death is natural, not life. It needs to be struggled for and against the wrong. You have the similar ideology in Islam, where the dictate that the woman is inferior to the man leads to the fact that half the population is unemployable, besides all other kinds of violations of the women. But you also have it in what I call Calvinism. Uh, I admit I'm a Presbyterian minister. But I also see a real sharpness of Calvinism protruding into our culture that does away with some of the things Calvin taught, but nevertheless stands in that tradition. For it's interesting that Calvin's first published book was a translation of Seneca's, of a Seneca text, uh, De Senectute, on age, who was a Stoic. And he published that in, in 1532, four years before the Institutes. He was steeped in Greek fatalistic mindsets. And no wonder he reaches Christianity from a similar perspective, and he was by far not the only one. In fact, you find it in Boetius, the comfort of the uh, consolation of philosophy. You find it in Luther. Again and again, the emphasis that somehow the Christian ought to abolish his moral sensitivity and his mind and just accept things as they come because God is in control. The sovereignty is such that he pulls all the strings. That's not what the text says. But philosophically, that's what's expressed. And it's a way to do away with the need of human beings to be thoughtful, reflective, open to renewal and a new view of things, and precisely morally sensitive to object to that which is evil. And happily, we have evidence of that in Christ who contradicts the what I've just called Calvinistic conclusion. Because history is not the evidence of God's character and nature. Creation manifests according to Romans to God's power and imagination, not his moral character. His moral character is expressed in the word, living and written. And the written word is the one that protests the behavior of human beings, who laments the situations that people get themselves into in the Old Testament. Look at the protests of the prophets against the king of the northern kingdom at the time of Amos and others. And likewise, as Hebrews tells us, Jesus Christ is the expressed image of the Father. And if you look at the life of Christ, he did not come into the world to pacify us and to say, it's okay. Everything is fine because God is in control. Now, he weeps over the death of Lazarus. He objects to the false teaching of the rabbinical Jews. He objects to the disciples keeping the children away from him. He objects to illness, to false teaching, and to the demons. Christ came as one not to tell us that everything is fine and we must just believe. He came to encourage us precisely to be thoughtful, reflexive, and moral agents made in the image of God to bring forth that which is of righteousness and justice and not just to sort of go along with a desire for peaceful existence ourselves. So ideas come from God. Ideas are intrinsic to human beings because we've been made in the image of a God who has ideas. Ideas look back and they look forward in a history that's open, that's not finished. You will never be finished. Eternity is not the arrest of history. Eternity is not Plato's heaven. Eternity is an ongoing existence on earth when Christ reigns 
and when we will be restored to full humanity. And until then, work needs to be done, not to be suppressed. Ideas need to be had in moral and practical realms, not ideologies that do away with the human mind or eventually even with human beings themselves. Thank you very much. Dr. Middleman, thank you for your uh, really good and stimulating lecture. Um, so I, I'm really intrigued with the idea of freedom of ideas and how you were pressing that up against Calvinism at the end of your talk. I, I think it flowed very well. So it's just a, a specific question about how history might uh, work for or against that final premise there. So my question may need to be examined as well as I'd love to hear your, your comments for it. It seems that where Reformed thought, high Calvinistic thought, to use the terminology you went, when that would press into new cultures, that would actually open up ideas, open up culture, expand culture, um, hospitals, cultures getting better because of that sort of thing. But that would seem to go against your premise about meticulous providence or meticulous sovereignty in, in your thing. So do you have any thoughts on that, how, how I could reconcile that? Well, let me give you uh, an experience I had in Omsk where there were some we were, we were having a conference there, and uh, there was a Christian there with some church planting group, um, and he came and said, uh, "Don't you? Don't I make the mistake in uh, suggesting that their situation is not what God wanted them to have, and therefore they should pick up the axe and work and uh, discover who they are, what they need to do, uh, find little ways to improve, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Uh, because what he was teaching them is precisely that God is in control, where before it was the Communist Party that was in control. But it was the same kind of control. And I said, no, the Bible doesn't teach us that. The Bible not only says that the Communist state control was a evil, wicked control, but rather the, it also teaches that the situation you're in is not in God, is not controlled by God. It is known by God in all its detail. But the God that the Bible tells us about is a God who rejoices and grieves, who is upset and disappointed and pleased. So it's a God that, that, that doesn't approve of every situation that comes along. And the last thing these Russians needed to hear is that somebody else has now taken over the control. I don't know if that... So just as follow-up then. Yeah, so with that being the case, I would agree... And yet it, it seems like places where uh, the argument that God is in that kind of control uh, have gone in cultures, those cultures have actually expanded and improved. And so I'm wondering if the test of history disproves what that final um, thesis that you're at. It's, in other words, I'm not disagreeing that we don't want to just replace the old boss with the same version of a new flavor, but, but rather could it be that in some systems an idea of meticulous providence might actually be compatible with expansion of ideas. Well, what is compatible is the recognition that I am a child of a loving Heavenly Father who uh, desires that I find a different situation. And then 
take the responsibility to work towards that situation. I'm not alone. I can ask for wisdom. I can ask for God's help, intervention, creativity, and so forth. I'm not in an insane or totally conflicted reality in which everything's hopeless. And that leads to, yeah, that leads to progress and extension. Just eventually, you know, the, the question will, does, should, often arise, well, what do I do with the painful things of life? And then, of course, I need to distinguish between did I create them myself, and thus the punishment is always painful, and, and the fact that God only does good doesn't mean that there aren't painful experiences to be had because God is good. But uh, I need to stay clear of uh, what Dr. Schaefer said, quoting Baudelaire, that if God is the creator of this world as I observe it, he must be the devil. Because there are so many things that are just not able to be put into that recognition. No, there are things objectively wrong. And it seems to me that's, we, we, we need to, in my experience, our churches haven't stressed enough the reality of the fall touching also the natural world. And the fact that believing doesn't remove me from the wicked effects or the effects of wicked people's, other, other people's choices and so forth. So that I don't have to hang everything that happens on the name of God and say, Inshallah or Kesara Sarah. Thank you so much for uh, your lecture. I have a question about um, putting two of the concepts that you've uh, talked about together, and I haven't quite been able to figure them out in my mind. So on the one hand, you spoke about how there is not this inevitable upward progress in history where um, so much of knowledge that has been gained was permanently lost, cultural artifacts are gone. And then on the other hand, you spoke about how our, our work is valuable because it adds something to the world. But if I put those two ideas together, I get work that does something but may not have any lasting value. How do you explain um, being able to, to do good in the world um, when the fact is, you know, 10 years down the road, it might all completely fall apart? Well, that's a very good point, and, and perhaps I didn't explain myself sufficiently because I didn't talk about having no lasting value but having no lasting effect, and they're different. An effect can be forgotten, overlooked, denied, rejected. The value is there because it was done. It was, uh, it has taken up time. It has its own consequences, possibly invisible. Maybe they surface again later. It certainly is present as a valuable reality before God forever. So Bach's music was not played for widely for decades, you know, then it was rediscovered. Wonderful. It doesn't mean that it was only valuable when it was rediscovered. It stands there. And that's that's very uh, very central to our understanding of our exist our life, that you do things because they're right, not because other people notice them. You know, if they don't notice them, that's their problem. Maybe yours too, but it's their basic problem. Uh, and uh, and so yes, you know we we rediscovered uh, heating systems with hot water, and we also rediscovered mortar. Mortar the Romans had. We didn't have it until 18, 820 or so. Paul Johnson writes about it. We rediscovered the mixture of sand and lime and what else? Something else. Uh, but it's it's 
you know, if in fact history is real before God and as part of the inheritance that we have, even though we don't know about it, it is valuable. And especially then when you realize it is valuable because Joe did it or Bach wrote it. So it's not, it's not the, 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 the quality of something is not judged by its effectiveness. Just like the quality of a book is not judged by how many people read it. Or the quality of a leather shoe is not dependent on how many people buy it or what the price is. But rather, you know, is it in it of itself what shoeness ought to be? Now, if you rely on effectiveness, then uh, often you would be very disappointed. For one thing, you know, I mean, that's the the book of the motorcycle uh, maintenance book. You know, the quality is something very, very important. I don't go along with much of the book, but it was beautifully written. But that was a cult book back when I was young. Uh, The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Yeah. Uh, You know, quality is something that the Stoics emphasized and that the Buddhists, some Buddhists emphasize, but they focus only on the moment, whereas the Christian and the, the Jew from the Bible looks at it as a thing in itself that has lasting value because there's a God who sees it. Dr. Schaefer used to talk about, you know, how wasteful it was, people think, that there is this little buttercup at 3,000, so 6,000 feet elevation on some piece of pasture off the track and nobody sees it. Does it have no value? Of course it has value. There it is. Beautiful buttercupness, fulfilled. And nobody sees it as wrong too because God sees it. Yes, sir. Thank you, Udo, very much for, there's a lot to think about on that. You never used the word hope, but I'm wondering if, in a way, everything that you were defending is related to a proper interpretation of the Christian virtue of hope. Um, would you comment on on the proper understanding of hope and how it relates to the topic? Yes, gladly. I, I did say hopeful once. Yes. <laughs> to my surprise. No, I, uh, but uh, yes, I'd be glad to do that. Hope in the biblical context as my wife once did when she did a study of the word hope in the New Testament always relates or in most cases relates to the second coming Uh, we have a hope that in reality a situation will arise when things will be made whole and therefore every step in that direction is an expression of that hope it is not wasted or my illustration is, you know, every doctor that knows that every of his pa- every one of his patients will die still does something for you because he anticipates on some level that this is an unacceptable situation and will improve it, and Christ will come and improve it all. So hope is that expectation that in real history things will be uh, better repaired, the wrong will be undone. And that's why we are hopeful. It is not the theology of hope that is making ourselves 
optimistic when there's no ground for optimism or hopeful, pretending to ourselves that things will be better when we have no expectation that they really will be better or have no tools to make them better. Not that kind of a hope. But hope in the sense of saying, you know, this is a situation which is uh, there but dissatisfying, dissatisfactory. Uh, I will work on it and I, and I will expect that Christ will work on it when he comes. That, but maybe even even more fundamental to your basic argument um, or the truth that you were trying to defend or were defending, uh, even when Christ comes back, even when all is fulfilled, it's not going to be a static universe, and the human being will still be a creature made in the image of God who has a mind that is imagining things that are not yet and seeking in an open-ended way to bring about new things uh, that uh, that haven't yet been or at least put in the form that they are. And it seems to me that capacity, that, it, that things are not finalized as they are, there's always a possibility to, to move on and to progress, even when sin is no longer here to be fixed, uh, is a virtue, uh, a matter of fundamental humanness, um, and it seems to me the idea of hope as a virtue rather than just hopefulness is probably the least well understood of the Christian virtues. But it had a lot to do with your topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. I fully agree with you. And I think that's another area where the Platonic heaven has falsely been identified with the Christian presence of the Lord or the reign of Christ. Because the Platonic heaven has all kinds of problems, including the fact that it's closed. It's, I mean, it's a closure. It's perfect, static perfection. Uh, it, there's no room there for addition, variation, Im, uh, improvement, not in the sense of moral improvement, but improvement in the sense of refinement. Whereas, yeah, I think I think what Scripture shows us is tells us is that when Christ reigns on earth, the heavenly city of Jerusalem comes down to earth then indeed we will again be able to do what Adam and Eve were meant to do forever. Talk, compose music, refine their piano playing, improve their singing, delight in the soil that God has made and what grows in it, etc., etc. An ongoing dynamic, uh, historic continuum of human existence without interruption and without frustration other than the frustration that I don't know today what I will be able to do tomorrow if I put my mind to it. Yeah. That's right. I mean, you know, we we grappled with that when we didn't grapple with it. We were somewhat upset when people wrote at Edith Schaefer's death two years ago that now she's gone home to heaven, which uh, is not a biblical concept. Paul doesn't talk about going to heaven. He talks about going to be with the Lord. We've turned, much of the church has turned heaven into something much more platonic and otherworldly and immaterial and timeless. Just like they think eternal life is timeless. Uh, not if you start with the God of the Bible who is not timeless. He's timeless in the sense of outside of chemistry and physics creation, but he's not timeless in the sense that everything was statically present to him. In his mind, he knows the end from the beginning, but he doesn't experience the end already until it happens. So Christ was not yet 
the, the, the woman at the at the grave at the tomb could not touch him because he had not yet been glorified. Then after he comes back, he says, "Thomas, touch me." There's a before and after. The Holy Spirit was not yet given because Christ had not yet been glorified. Yes, sir. Yes, thank you for your talk and thank you for your references to uh, to Bach and certain music. Um, I wanted to continue that conversation a bit in relation to the way we experience God's sovereignty here and now in this present age. Um, Jeremy Begbie over at Duke and at Cambridge, um, he's written a lot about this and he's used the analogy of jazz music to help us understand perhaps how form and freedom work. Um, and jazz is a great one because it has very strict form metrically harmonically, but melodically there's much freedom there in uh, extemporaneous jazz improv. I wonder if you have any kind of illustrations or an- analogies like that that would help encapsulate or crystallize your view of form and freedom in this present age. That would be a good, that would be a good illustration is that on this part of the moment. Uh, I often compare it with there being many actors on stage and they don't have prescripted lines. With the poor, this poor parallel, because uh, the Bible presents God as knowing the end from the beginning, so He knows what lines the other ones are going to say, but He doesn't hear them until they say them, and then He responds to them. So there is a, a uh, there are many actors on the stage. In other words, it's not one main actor who pulls out. It's not a puppet theater with one hand of ten fingers pulling all the puppet strings. Um, nor is it uh, the openness of God, theology God, who is a good pal, holds your hands and says, we'll make it. I don't know what's happening either, but together we'll make it. You know, it's not that either. Uh, the difference lies, I, I, the way I find the difference justified is in the understanding that the term to know something is different for the Greek mind than the Jewish mind. For the Greek mind, it is intellectual. I know something. And so God can know intellectually the end from the beginning before it ever happened. And as Schaefer used to say, if his knowledge is indeed infinite, he not only knows what will happen, he also knows what could happen if, he also knows what could never happen. He knows everything. The Jewish knowledge is the existential experience of something. So when the Bible says that Isaac knew Rebekah and they became one, I don't know if it says that, but, you know, took her in his tent and they knew each other. The sexual relationship was an experience that wasn't there before, and then they were married. And that's what uh, I find also helpful in relationship to the uh, Abraham and Isaac account. When Abraham raises the knife to kill Isaac, uh, we read in the text, then God knew. Well, not in the sense he didn't know before, but then he saw in experience that Abraham was truly devoted to God and lived in the faith of Abraham's, I mean, of Isaac's resurrection if necessary, because after all, there's going to be a seed and a nation and a blessing through him. And so this wouldn't be the end of Isaac. But it's the immediate experience of that that is described as then God knew. And so... You know, I can have an all-knowing God, which is what scripture tells me, with a historically knowing God at the same time. 
because the distance, the difference is between the intellectual knowledge and the existential experience knowledge. God is not ignorant. Just like when he says to Adam, where are you? He's not ignorant. He knows. And he knows that there are other illustrations that, that Francis Schaeffer used a couple of times. One is this wonderful story of David being running away from Saul, hiding in the town of Keilah, something like that, in Second Samuel. And uh, he sits there, and Saul is approaching on his horse. And uh, he asked, David asked the, the God, will the people of Keilah open the gate and deliver me to Saul? And God says, yes. And so what does David do? Well, he runs away. Of course, any sane person would. And what happens then is that Saul, hearing that David is gone, never reaches the gates. So the people never get asked that. God knew if this remains the same, it'll be this. If you change history, there'll be a different response. The other is the story of the shipwreck, story of uh, Paul, at the end of Acts, when God tells him that uh, they will all be safe if they all remain on board. And so he yells after the sailors who take the lifeboat and says, come back or we'll all drown. And happily they come back and nobody gets injured. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows what will happen, what might happen, what could happen, or what could never happen. That's infinite knowledge. But the experience is very real, very historical, very specific, very much related to choices. And perhaps that's the good parallel to, to jazz, where, you know, you have a, 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 what to the layperson is a spontaneous response to the play of the other persons, but within a defined framework. So it's not random, but it's creative. And it's creative within boundaries. And so that, to me, you know, that's, we, we ask for God's wisdom. We, from time to time, see something that convinces us this must be God's doing because I really don't have another explanation. Uh, we realize that in a fallen world, uh, things are not uh, to be accepted as they happen merely because they happen historically. There are things to be done uh, to, uh, to do what is right and good and just and, and so forth and healing. Um, we, uh, we, we pray for wisdom to know that and uh, we're happily acknowledging that we are the children of the living God whose desire is that, we indeed, that things would indeed be made correct. And they will from time to time already. From time to time we're told the life, the comp situation is so complex I can't do it yet. And so I never pray, uh, will you please heal on um, whatever, Jonah, uh, from, from her illness? Or, uh, you know, yeah, will you please do that? You will be done. No, I said, can you do it at this point? Or is the devil too much still an opposition? Remember that last passage in Daniel where the angel tells Daniel, I'm so sorry I'm late, two weeks, but I was up, held up by the evil one who prevented me from coming to you in time? You know, there's, it's not for nothing that we talk about the war in the heavenlies. That Elisha saw an army when his eyes were open for a moment. There's a battle going on. It's not as if God could wield a wand and have everything do work out. That's why you have a grieving Jesus, the man of sorrows, etc.
because this isn't history, as I said earlier, history is not the manifestation of God's will. Manifestation of God's will is the person of Christ, the words of the prophets, and the text of scripture. That's where we know the character of God and the will of God, not by looking at history and saying, oh, God is very gracious to whatever, the whites and the wealthy. Can we have one more? This one. Can we have one more? Was there one more? Yes, sir. Then I need to. All right. Um, I, I'm building off of Dr. Heimbach's question. I'm struggling to find pastoral hope in the way that you're talking about God, specifically in the immediate hope. Um, when I read the scriptures... The God I see is the one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. The one who is upholding all things by the word of his power, moment by moment, including the men who crucified Jesus, who did exactly as God had predetermined that they would do. The God who willed to crush his son in order to bring salvation. The preacher in Ecclesiastes says, who can make straight what God has made crooked? In the days of good, rejoice. In the days of adversity, know this, the Lord has made the one as well as the other, yet in a way so that no man can find out God's immediate purpose. Earlier in the book it says, what God does, he does in such a way so that man will fear him that it's my ignorance of God's purposes that actually drives me to dependence. That without sin in the world, as Jonathan Edwards said, there would be no sin to save to, for, for Christ to save us from. Without brokenness in this world, there would be no healing needed that Christ could secure. Yeah, And I'm struggling to see how I can send people out in the mission field with a God that is so small. I want them to be absolutely confident that when God acts, it will happen, and that he will not get caught off guard, that when I'm standing at the bedside with someone dying of leukemia, that I can say God is on the throne. Would you say that with ISIS? I would. I must. So would you Otherwise, I have no hope that right now God is not getting caught off guard with ISIS. He wasn't with Paul in First, Second Corinthians chapter 1 when he said, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the great trauma and hindrances I underwent in Asia. Indeed, I thought I was going to die. I had the death sentence upon myself in order that I might not trust in myself but on God. That, that purpose clause, this happened in order that I might not trust in myself but on God, that, the, he, that he almost, I think what it's saying is God almost had to kill Paul in order to get him to the place of dependence. So at the end of the book when he says, I saw these great visions, 
And then a thorn was given to me in my side, a messenger of Satan to torment me. A messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from becoming proud. That Satan was there, and yet it was there was a greater purpose to keep Paul humble. I'm struggling to know how I can give hope to our missionaries. Well, you don't. You shouldn't give hope that things will be solved. You should give hope that God is our heavenly Father who will solve it uh, in the time it requires to solve that, and it requires time. Uh, otherwise, why hasn't he done it yet? To your first point, uh, there's an old sermon we read in seminary in along the same lines, and as we ought to be glad for the fall because then now we know the grace of God in Christ. I've never understood the reasoning behind that because we would have been much better off without the fall and we would have had an eternal relationship with the Trinity, including Christ. You know, I don't, I don't, look, I don't see a plan of God to give us grief and thorns in the flesh, etc., etc., in a perfect world. Just so, the reality is, we live in a world in which we have a prince of the power of this world who mitigate works against God, in which we have a body that is tends towards death, and we will all die unless Christ comes back, in which life is not fair uh, after the fall, in which we none of us get what we deserve. We all get more and we all get less, uh, which is not God's doing. God's doing is, I created a good world. However, why ever did you make it go so bad, O Adam? But it's not hopeless. I'll step in. You need to work. I step in by the promise of the Messiah. I tell you, you've got to get along with your wife. Don't accuse her that she is the one who did it. Uh, don't give up hope and uh, say, now the thorns and thistles take over. Don't stop loving each other, but you have to have babies. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a Maria, Mary who would give birth to the Messiah. So they went on having babies, as it says so beautifully. And Adam called the woman Eve, which is the meaning, the meaning is the mother of all the living. And so you have a battle going on from the fall on for good against evil. And evil is there, the origin of a temptation that Satan extended in his battle against God because he wanted to be like God. And it's that battle of which we are a part. And the hope lies not in that my problems will be solved, that ISIS will be repelled, that uh, I will have justice, that the poor only get what they deserve. We live in a fair world, etc. That's not the hope. The hope is that I'm not alone. There will be a resurrection. There's a present power of God that helps me to deal with the, this and this and this problem that I face in life. That gives me the courage to till the land and carry the water so that I can grow my food. That gives me the courage to go to my children and say, I've done terrible things, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? That gives me the courage to uh, whatever, uh, in anticipation of its fullness when Christ returns. But in the meantime, uh, I'm able to do what I'm called to do, and that is to seek justice because there is no justice to tell about the power of God because it isn't everywhere. The knowledge of God is everywhere. Uh, his holiness is everywhere. His desire for fulfillment is everywhere. But not everything that happens is the express will of the Father. Otherwise, why did Jesus get so furious at the tomb of Lazarus? He could have just said, well, that's the will of God. 
Why was he so upset when uh, when the Pharisees taught such wicked things that were that they deserved a millstone around their neck and thrown in the river? Why wasn't it just God's will to just sort of clarify it all? No, there's a battle going on, and that uh, any kind of Islamic, uh, deterministic, uh, totally control point of view uh, removes, uh, whether it's religious or political. You know, Marxism removes that too. You have nothing to complain about. You're just going through different phases of history that are necessary in the dialectic and so forth. And it's only the Bible that makes precisely a distance, creates a distance between God and his power and his character and the reality of history that has been influenced by other actors, human beings that have sinned, and Satan that wishes to discredit God.